brought some water too. And Dale and Wayne have uh, told me that the sermon length will be judged by the cup of water. So when the cup of water is gone, the sermon will be over. I'm a very slow drinker. So, so please don't leave till the water gone. I'd like to draw your attention to one verse of scripture this morning, and it is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. It's actually, I said one verse, it's actually three verses, but really one thought, as it is one sentence. Verses 16, 17, and 18, I'm sure you are familiar with that. This is God's word. These are imperatives, and they are given for a good reason. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Let's pray together. Lord our God, we thank you you have not left us without revelation. Not just a general revelation, but a very specific revelation of you and your will. Of who you are, that which we have already sang of this morning. You, O oh Father, are on the throne. There is none to match you. The sum total of nearly 8 billion people on the face of the earth are no match for you the combined armies of the nations of the earth are something that just brings hilarity and laughter to you as man thinks that he can wage war against God with success. You can snuff them out so simply. And yet you who are the Almighty, you who are the Creator, the Sustainer of life, the Redeemer, you have drawn us into your presence that we might have access to you through Jesus Christ, our Lord, this morning. And we praise and thank you for that. We pray, O oh God, that you would bless us with the presence of your Spirit. And we are mindful that our Lord Jesus Christ has said, if we ask the Father, he will give. And so this morning, as has been done, we ask you again for the giving of your Spirit in the time of our study of your Word. Father, as we come to these few verses this morning, this one single thought rooted in the will of God for us in Christ Jesus, we pray that your spirit would help us to understand them. We ask that we would feel the impact of the revealed word of God, and we pray, Lord, that we would live like this, that we would be rejoicing people, praying people, thankful people, because it is well-pleasing to you. We pray these things in Christ's blessed and holy name. Amen. I'd like to read a couple of poems to you this morning by way of introduction. One of them I'm sure you're probably familiar with. You studied in your English classes at some point in school. The other one probably not as familiar with. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the foul clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. 
Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, nor charged with punishment the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. You remember that? You recognize it? It's quite a boast, isn't it? That's William Ernest Henley, and that, fo that poem is considered really a classic, and I think it is a classic of humanistic thought, humanistic thought of our own will. The second poem, out of the light that dazzles me, bright as the sun from pole to pole, I thank the God I know to be for Christ, the conqueror of my soul. Since his the sway of circumstance, I would not wince nor cry aloud. Under that rule which men call chance, my head with joy is humbly bowed. Beyond this place of sin and tears, that life with him and his the aid, despite the menace of the years, keeps and shall keep me unafraid. I have no fear, though straight the gate. He cleared from punishment the scroll. Christ is the master of my fate. Christ is the captain of my soul. I'd like to suggest that we change one word to fit with our text this morning, one word in each of these poems, the word soul. Though it is inclusive of will, let's change it to will. Henley says, my unconquerable will. Later he says, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my will. But then Dorothea Day says, I thank the God I know to be for Christ the conqueror of my will. And then she concludes, Christ is the master of my fate. Christ is the captain of my will. So I ask you this morning as we come to this passage of scripture, as we consider those two poems, which, which really capture the diametrically opposed thought and philosophy of I am my own captain, I rule my own life, or I am the submission to Christ and his rule. And really, the whole of the human race is divided into that. You this morning, how do you fit with those two poems? Are you... In the first, are you thinking that you're the captain of your own soul, the master of your own fate? If you are, we would say with the scriptures, fool. Or, or are you with Dorothea Day? Christ is the captain of my soul. Christ is the one who rules my will, and I seek to be in submission to him. And those poems fit well with what we look at this morning. In our text, the will of God is prominent. We are told, we are actually commanded in this text to do three things. And the reason we must do them, and the word must here is specifically selected, the reason we must do them as Christians is because it is the will of God. 
They're not thrown out there just as an option for us. They're, they're put out there as the will of God. Three things we are to do, three things rather that we are to be because it is the will of God and the will of God is prominent. And so I lay before you two points this morning for our consideration. The first is this, the prominence of the will of God in the Christian's life. The prominence of the will of God in the Christian's life. And then after we look at that, we'll consider the imperatives rooted in God's will. The, the imperatives that come to us, ways that we are to live because of God's will. That's what Paul is putting across in this passage of Scripture. So let's examine those two points this morning. The first, again, is this. The prominence of God's will in the Christian life. That is to say, if you as a Christian, if you are a Christian here this morning, God's will is what is prominent in your life. It must be. Now, as you do a quick analysis of yourself, as you do a, a, a brief examination, you may say, you may be able to say truthfully that it is. It is. And I seek that it be more so on a daily basis. Or you may say, you've got to be kidding. If we can be truthful with each other in the context of worship, might be somebody in here who says, you've got to be kidding. What in the world do I care about God's will? It's my will. I'm with Henley on this one. My unconquerable will. That's what counts. I'm going to do what I want to do. After all, isn't that what we're being trained to in our culture today? It's about me. I, I think I mentioned this a year or so ago when I visited. The, the I deserve mentality of the United States. I deserve, I deserve, I deserve. I spoke with a young man up in, it was actually in Times Square one evening. We were with a group that were witnessing up there, and this guy said, when I stand before God, and he was quite confrontive. So when I stand before I'm just, God, I'm just going to tell him, give me what I deserve. So, <laughs> no, 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 don't ask what you deserve. And so we look at the prominence of God's will in the Christian life. If you say, well, I, I just don't care about God's will, then we can truthfully say you're not a Christian. Because the Christian is concerned about God's will. He wants God's will to be his will in every aspect of life. And so listen carefully as you hear this this morning. But if you're a Christian, it's God's will that is to be prominent in your life. And it's not always easy, is it? <laughs> it's not always easy. We're not being Pollyannish as we look at these things. Think of what he has commanded us here in this text. Rejoice. Pray and be thankful. Not once a year. Always. And so we're not approaching this with a, a Pollyannish, simplistic mindset. Sometimes the will of God is exceedingly difficult. But the obvious truth to focus on here in the prominence of God's will is the question that we could ask, why is it that prominent? Why is it so important? Why ought I to give 
such consideration to this and thus to live this way, why? That's a legitimate question. So let's consider some of the reasons why God's will is so important to us. And I must again stop here and just by way of, of connecting to our culture and connecting to us. It is so slammed down our throats that I'm the king of my castle, my life. I need to do what I want to do. I need to pursue what I want to pursue. And we even have these ideas that um, whatever you want to go for, you can attain. That's not true. You, you have, each of us have certain intellectual abilities that cause us to be able to excel in some areas and not to do so hot in other areas. I know if you're familiar with the James Harriet books, but James Harriet's real name was Al Elf White, and he was an average student. He did okay in the scientific classes, but he could not wrap his mind around mathematics. He could not get mathematics. He struggled and struggled and just barely made a passing grade, which I don't understand their grading system in Glasgow, but he made like a 27%. And he got by with it. He just didn't have the aptitude for it. So we come back to the absolute prominence of God's will in every Christian's life. Why is it so prominent? Well, what's the answer to that? It's rooted in what we were just singing about. It's rooted in the being of God. It's rooted in who God is. Because God is who he is, his will is prominent in our lives personally. It's all rooted in who he is. May I, may I give a little complaint to y'all? Just my limited little observation of modern evangelicalism. We're just not interested enough in the character and being of God as we ought to be. Dr. Lloyd-Jones lamented, I think it was in 1925, he said, you can't stir a theological conversation with anybody. He included philosophy as well. Now we're talking Dr. Lloyd-Jones, who is a medical doctor first and one of the leading theologians of all time. And he, he lamented, you, you just can't stir a theological conversation with anybody. And then he said the reason why. He said, because people don't know the theology. What is theology? Theos, God, logos, study. Theology is the study of God. It is to consume us in all that we are. It's to, it's to take our focus. We're to study the being of God. This book is not just about the doctrine of redemption or making us feel good about God's love for us. It's to reveal to us this great God. We'd be drawn to him. And so why is this will of God so important? Because it's God. Let's consider four things with reference to God. We're just glossing over these things. Why is this a... A, a, a powerful, motivating factor to be joyful and praying and thankful people, the will of God. 
Because God, who God is. First of all is this. God is self-existing. Totally independent. He needs nobody. He needs nothing. Now that's very easy to say up here. But who else in here fits into that category? Totally independent. Don't need anything from anybody. Never have, never will. You know, there's people that think they're like that. I can imagine Henley, who wrote that first poem, thinking that way. But here's something that just should just blow our minds as we contemplate the being of God. Totally self-sufficient. Well, it's difficult to say that God existed in eternity past because eternity is a time reference. And as, as bizarre as it is to our limited minds, there was no time prior to God creating time. <laughs> Contemplate that one for a while. There was no time. He created time. He made it so that the earth goes around the sun making a year's time. So that the earth revolves on its axis. This is the self-existing and independent one. Many of you all in here know the, the biblical name that communicates that, that the focus of that is. It's the name Yahweh. When Moses stands before the burning bush and the God of the burning bush says, you go down to Egypt and release my people. And Moses says, who shall I say has sent me? They're going to want to know. They've got all these gods down there. Look, the land is full of gods. Who am I to say? The burning bush says, you tell them Yahweh has sent you. Yahweh. You know what Yahweh says to us this morning? My will for you is this. Rejoice. Pray. Be thankful. It's not an option. He's not saying if... If you feel like it, if you want to, he's telling us to be that way. I challenge you, try to wrap your mind. Put time into it. Escape with your, your favorite drink, your favorite legal drink. And the illegal ones get out of there. Your favorite drink, your favorite spot, by yourself and wrestle with the independent God who needs nothing outside of himself. Secondly, God is the creator. Why is his will so important? Why ought we pay attention? It is God's will, God the creator. I think, too, here's another thing where we kind of throw that off without really giving deep contemplation to it. Yes, God created all things. I know that. Okay? So let's move on to something else now. I think we can make strong evidence, strong argument, the evidence of Scripture, that God as the Creator is the most stressed truth throughout the Scriptures. It's repeated, it's stressed in all but one or two books where it's not mentioned. God is the Creator. Now lock in on that again as we contemplate God and as, as we're using this as a weight, as a force, as a, a motivating factor so that we will live as this passage tells us to live. 
He called all things into existence. He spoke the world into existence. You know, the, la the latest numbers I've seen, which were a couple of years ago, is that scientists now believe that there's not 350 trillion stars. They now believe there's 350 trillion galaxies. See a couple of people looking like this. That's, that's right. How can, we, how can we wrap our minds around that? Or how can we neglect the God who calls that into existence? And it's not just the vastness of the universe. Um, Isaiah 40 tells us he's created all the stars, he's hung them in place, he's named every one of them, and he's not lost a single one. My family and I will talk about an animal that we've had in the past, a dear pet, a wonderful dog or a wonderful cat that we've all loved for several years. I can't come up with the name. What was that dog's name? I held it. I petted it. I fed it. I took it outside. I played with it. I threw balls for it to bring back. And I cannot remember its name. And God can never say that. He can never say it. Billions of galaxies, and he'll say, I know every one, and I know every one of those stars, and I put it right exactly where it is, and its size, whether it's a giant or whether it's a dwarf, I designed it that way. And it's him, it's him who says, this is my will for your life. Not only the big things, though, but the, the minute things. Look into the eye of a fly. Look at the, the body structure of those nasty mosquitoes, so highly designed. Look, look at a, a typical fish whose bladder uh, causes it to rise or to fall according to the atmospheric pressure change, and that dictates how it eats. Or if you're up in the Great Lakes, you're fishing coho salmon or schnook salmon or brown trout, you're fishing them according to the temperature of the water. You're looking for 54 to 56 degrees. If it's three feet down, then you fish three feet, because that's where the fish are going to be. And if it's 27 feet down, you put out your downriggers and you run your bait down there 27 feet, because that's where the fish are going to be. Do you know who designed that? God who says to you this morning, this is how I want you to live. Not only is God the self-existing one, the creator, more briefly, he's the preserver. Contemplate that. He's the one. When we say preserves, what I mean by that is he is the one who unfolds history. In the book of Isaiah, I think it's chapter 44, he prophesies, Isaiah prophesies 145 or 144 years prior to Cyrus being born, that Cyrus will be born and what he will do and Isaiah calls him by name. 144 years. Let me ask you, what are you going to be at 502 tomorrow? And you'll have to say AM or PM. It doesn't matter. Where are you going to be? 144 years. And God says, Cyrus is going to do this. And it's going to be exactly according to And he is the redeemer. 
course, the focus here we could take right directly to our Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> but when I say Redeemer, I want to think real big. Jesus Christ, real big. That God's not just redeeming a few people. God has laid claim to the universe that right now is under the bondage of sin and decay. And he is reclaiming what is rightfully his. Can you imagine such a task? I like to, I like to build things. And a lot of things that I build, I build with salvaged material. I'll get some pallets or, or get some material somebody's throwing out. Denail it, cut it up, run it through the planers. And then, and then try to construct something out of it. Rarely does it go together like I plan it. <laughs> it goes together. But thank the Lord for powerful vices and furniture clamps to, <clears throat> to get those things together. But God is putting it all back together. It's all broken. <laughs> the world is broken. Think of a, a beautiful pot well-designed, just, just perfect and painted and it's smashed into thousands of pieces. You look at it and think, that'll never go back together. Sweep it up and throw it away. That's what the universe looked like after the fall. That's what the world looked like. That's what humanity looked like after the fall. And God is putting it back together. He's redeeming. See, how can we how can we run through a verse like this that we're studying this morning and say, oh, yeah, yeah, and I got it. I've heard that one before. This is the will of God. This is what Almighty God desires for his people. Secondly, in the prominence of God's will. <clears throat> Did you notice what it says here? It's his will in Christ Jesus. It's his will in Christ Jesus. That is exceedingly significant. God communicates his will to us in the person of Christ Jesus. Paul uses this terminology, since this is Paul's book here, his letter. <clears throat> we'll focus on that. He uses in Christ 167 times. 167 times. Now, just to draw a parallel, the word ecclesia, the word church, which there's not, few, there's not many words as important as the word church. Christ died for the church. In all of scripture, it appears 110 times. Just a mere 110 times. Who does God save and draw into the church? The elect, the electors. The, the root word of church is the word kaleo, those whom he has called together. He forms into bodies. That word elect appears 47 times. So you see 167 times just in the writings of the Apostle Paul. This is quite a concept. And Paul says, this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. He's talking there of our union with Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian, you have been vitally united to Jesus Christ. You live because he lives. 
You have an inheritance that is nothing less than the Father because Christ has an inheritance that is nothing less than the Father. We who are in Christ are brothers and sisters in Christ because we are in Christ. But I want to take that and hone and focus a little bit as we think of, of the will of the Father with reference to Jesus. Think of three of the things that Jesus said about himself. He said, my work is to do the will of the Father. Now, if you've read the Gospels, you know that Jesus' work was very prominent to him. It was exceedingly important. And Jesus said, this is my work. This is how I would define it. It is to do the will of my Father. That's what it's about for me. Y'all, we who are in Jesus Christ, that's what it's about for us. Doing the will of the Father. Jesus says also in John's Gospel, my food and my drink is to do the will of the Father. You remember the disciples were trying to get him to eat. Food was uh, prominent in that setting, in that text. And Jesus says, I've got food and drink. My food and drink is to do the will of the Father. And you know, that is to be our perspective. That is to be our longing. That is to be our desire. That doing the will of the Father is so important. That's my food and drink on a daily basis. But go into the Garden of Gethsemane, the Garden of Christ's suffering. Do you remember what he says there? Remember what Christ says in the Garden? He says, Father, if there's any way, take this cup from me. Any way at all. If we can do this some other way, Father, right now the suffering is so intense. Let's do it a different way. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. How powerful to us, especially in times when we're going through a difficult situation. Jesus was in a difficult situation. And he prays, Father, this is what I would like. Let's, let's do it a different way. But it's not my will that's important. It's your will. You ever been in situations where it was your will versus the Father's will? And you said, I think my will wins this time. I'm going to do what I want to do. I've done that many times. But what we ought to say is, Father, I... I choose to do something else here, but I will do your will. And then think too, <clears throat> Jesus teaching his disciples with reference to the will of God. He said, pray like this. Pray like this. In Luke, he says, pray in this manner, which probably indicates that we are to pray the Lord's Prayer at times. But he says, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. God's will is prominent. We are to pray for his will to be done. And I stop short there. What's the rest of that? Thy will be done? Yeah, what a prayer. On earth as it is in heaven. And then finally, in the prominence of God's will, did you, did you catch the, the very powerful personal aspect of it? So we have, it's rooted in the character of God, who God is, connected to us being in Jesus Christ. But then you have this personal aspect of it. Notice, 
<clears throat> for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. For you. There's a, there's a little bit more I'd, I'd, I'd want to bring out. If you, if you look at for the will of God in Christ Jesus, notice he says Christ Jesus. Uh, one commentator says he's, he's focusing on both the humanity and the deity of Jesus Christ here. I don't think that's what he's doing. That's inclusive. But I think he's focusing on, first of all, Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the one who has died for his people. The one who is the prophet, priest, and king for his people. He's drawing our attention to that. God's will for us in our anointed one, the one that God has provided, is that we live this way. But then again, this third aspect here is this. For you. For you. It's not just a generality out there. This is God's will. Paul brings it down and hones it in to the Christians of Thessalonica on the Thermatic Gulf here, and through him to us, to all Christians, and he says this, this is God's will for you. Now, <clears throat> if this is God's will for each of us in Christ, it must necessitate this. God has put thought into us. Imagine that. That doesn't blow us away like it should. God has put thought into us. It should make us like, like the psalmist in Psalm 40. He says, Lord, if I were to consider all of your thoughts towards me, they're too numerous. I, I could not put them in order. I can't even recall them. Elsewhere, the psalmist says, your thoughts are too high. They're too lofty. Psalm 139. Think about this. God thinks about you. We like to whine at times, don't we? And say, nobody knows what I'm going through. Nobody thinks about me in these situations, whatever that situation may be. That's categorically not true. God does. This is a very sweet, personable touch here. This is God's will for Christ Jesus and you. In other words, his will for you in Christ Jesus is a preconceived, pre-thought of, predetermined will with you in mind, Christian. Not just the great body of Christians, but every individual Christian. God says, this is what I want for you. This is my will for you. Wow, how great is that? You could go down through a whole list of the, of the great leaders of the nation, of, of the great leaders of our state, of the great leaders of our city, probability is any one of them gave any thought to you or me at all. <laughs> they don't even know we exist. But God does. And God gives thought. And God says, here's what I want. Here's what I want for you. So let me ask before we move into the final point. Is God's will prominent in your life? So it's not just have you ever considered it. Is it prominent? Is it the driving factor? One of the aspects of God's will is this. Draw close to me. Come, know me. That's why I've saved you. So that you will have communion with me. You will have fellowship with me. Do we consider that? 
I think ours is a time when we don't give much thought to the will of God. Secondly, and much more shortly, the imperatives rooted in the prominence of God's will. Did you notice these imperatives? Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks. That is so easy, we probably don't even need to go into it, right? No, we should probably go into it. You see in the text three imperatives, and each of these imperatives have modifiers. Rejoice when? Always. Pray when? Without ceasing. Give thanks when? In all things. The very significant grammatical point I want us to see here, very significant. In the Greek text, the modifier comes first. Instead of pray always, it's always pray. Instead of, I'm sorry, pray without ceasing. Um, rejoice always, it's always rejoice. Give thanks in all things. In all things, give thanks. And you can see when you turn that around, both really get a little bit more emphasis to them. But the German scholar, the, the Greek scholar, Lenski, says this. This is for emphasis. Emphasis on the continual, persistent, regular rejoicing, praying, and giving thanks. That's what Paul wants to cross to. And you might see, you might think that in his mind is this. Well, we know that we give thanks at times. We know that we pray at times. We know that we rejoice at times. But Paul wants us to see this. All the time do this. All the time do this. In every single detail, do this. In every single circumstance of life, do this. And this is one of the reasons why the Christian life really is the supernatural life. This is possible. You can actually live like this. This emphasis helps us to see what Paul is really getting at here. What he's really getting at is this. Be this way. Don't just do these things. Be this way. That's, that's the essence of the work of Jesus Christ and the giving of the Holy Spirit. He's not interested just that we do something, that we give money into the offering. He's desirous that we be giving people, that we be generous people, that in keeping with 2 Corinthians 8, we give with a hilarity, for God loves a cheerful giver. You see what Paul is getting at here is that we be this way. This is a matter of, in philosophy, it's a matter of ontology, a matter of being. Be a joyful person when? Always. Be a praying person when? In everything. <clears throat> be a thankful person. It's a pattern of life which God wills us to in Christ Jesus. We should, yea, we must be joyful, praying, and thankful people. I couldn't find the quote, but you know, Dr. Lloyd-Jones, I think it's in his book on spiritual depression, which is a 
very poorly named book. It's actually a book on rejoicing in the Christian life. It's an excellent book. But he starts it out, I think it's that book that says, Christians are really sad people. He said, it shouldn't be that way. We should be the most joyful people on the face of the earth. And yet it appears that Christians are really such sad people. We should be rejoicing people. And so in these three directives that we have here, and it's significant that they are imperatives. Paul's not throwing it out here for discussion. He's saying, this is what God wills. He's commanding you, be this way. Don't just do it but be it. Let's go back to Lenski for a moment. He's that German Greek scholar. <clears throat> he says this, the joy, focusing on rejoicing, the joy of the Christian life is the product of the whole gospel and the salvation that there is in Jesus Christ. Earthly joy fades after being uh, around for a brief moment, our joy of salvation never fades. He's answering the question, how can we be like that? How in the, the present circumstances of life can I be always rejoicing? And the answer to that is the gospel. And we hone the gospel even more. The answer to that is Jesus Christ. God's work in Jesus Christ. You know, through Jesus Christ, we have the promise of the Holy Spirit. He dwells within us. Something that we never would have had the guts to ask God for. Put your Holy Spirit in us. God has done that for us. The gospel should produce an enduring joy within us. I think of the psalmist who says in um, Psalm 103, 104, might be 105, He's, he's rejoicing because he says, you do not treat me as my sins deserve. You do not treat me as my sins deserve. I can, I can imagine a smile on his face thinking, God does not treat me as my sins deserve. And he never will now because he has dealt Christ as my sins deserve. <clears throat> Rejoice. Be a rejoicing person. What do I have to rejoice in? You have eternal things to rejoice in. You have things of real substance to rejoice in. You have so much to rejoice in that the rejoicing should never stop. If you're not a Christian, you can have those things. You can have true rejoicing. Concerning prayer, Dr. Simon Kistemek, who finished up the Hendrickson commentators, is that for me to shut up? <laughs> I'm just about done. Six more pages of notes and we're out of here. Dr. Kistemek was in Greek class one time. And he's writing his Greek and on the board and going through it. And, and we're asking a bunch of questions. There's a bunch of students out there. We're asking a bunch of questions. And, and finally, at one point, Dr. Kistemek would turn around. He was left-handed. He turns out like this. He says, why can't you get this? Why can't you get this? I wanted to say, well, Dr. Kissmaker, you got a doctorate in Greek and you know 20 other languages and you're gifted at this and these guys are like me back here. They're not gifted with it. I went into his office one time. He had nine commentaries all in different languages. 
I don't have that gift. I can imagine Paul saying here, why don't you get this? I've taught this before. I've told you about this. I preached it in your midst. Pray, pray, pray. What Paul means here, this is what Kistemaker says, what Paul means here is there must be no decline in the regularity of the habit of taking hold on God in the midst of all circumstances. You see, when he says pray without ceasing, he's not talking about every moment of every day you're to be praying. He's talking about in all circumstances and situations of life, prayer is to be offered. Prayer is, first of all, worship. Prayer is fellowship with the Almighty. We must get it. We must get it. And we must pray at all times. <clears throat> well, we still we can say, as difficult as these is, why? What's the motivation? The motivation for these things. Rooted in the person and the being of God. Paul has given much substance here in the letter. And uh, we, can't, we can't point it all out. We'll draw it to a close. Just go back to the first chapter for a moment. What do I have to rejoice over? What can I be thankful for? What he says here, he says of the true churches of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 2. I'm sorry, in the end of verse 1. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we typically, as we go into the reading of a letter, we blow through the salutation. Stop for a moment and think of the salutation. Paul is not blowing a smokescreen here. He's saying this, grace to you, the unmerited favor of God, the smile of God be upon you. If you're a Christian, the smile of God is upon you. Peace from God. Paul says, may God's peace come. Peace, biblically speaking, is not the absence of turbulence and difficulty. It's a suddenness in the midst of all that. The world's falling, about, uh, falling apart around us. We say, well, that's okay. God's in control. We don't say it flippantly. We say it with the substance of the reality that's behind it. But he continues through here. Making mention to you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, patience of hope in our Lord Jesus in the sight of our God and Father. Rejoice in this. Be thankful for this. God has been watching and he knows what you're doing. He knows your labor. He knows your work. He sees it all. And he rewards it. Verse 4. Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. Rejoice in this, Paul says. We know that God has elected you unto salvation. How do we know that? We see the difference in your life. And so rejoice in these things. And he continues on and on and on. We see one very significant aspect of Paul's rejoicing and Paul's giving of thanks for other people. Constantly. You see it here. In verse... Uh, in verse 2 he does, really all the way through there he does. Verse 13 in chapter 2, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word which you have heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but in truth as the word of God. Paul is praying for people. 
He's rejoicing in those people. Oh, they're not perfect. Think of the letter to the Corinthian church. Paul gives thanks to God for them. He rejoices in them. He, he's, he's praising God for them. And yet, before he gets out of the first chapter, he's starting to correct the problems. They aren't perfect people. But God has, Paul has thanked God for them. Well, let's draw to a conclusion. What is the conclusion? Live according to God's will. Live according to God's will. Be a joyful person. Be a prayerful person. Be a thankful person. Let's bow and let's pray together. Lord our God, we thank you for the revelation of your will. We thank you for allowing us to embrace it for as important as it is, for it is your will, not the mere will of man, but the will of Almighty God, God who is our Father. We thank you, O Lord, that you have given us an incredible amount of things that would cause us to always be rejoicing. You have welcomed us into your presence through Jesus Christ so that we can pray without ceasing. And we thank you that because we know your sovereign hand and control of all things, that in all things we can give thanks. And so we pray for your help, not just to do these things, but to be like this in the very essence of our being. We ask it in the glorious name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.